Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Joining us now, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. Mr. Secretary, welcome to Fox News Sunday. Thank you, Trace. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well, sir. I think the big message from the Secretary of Education is pretty similar to the one that the President of the United States has been issuing, and that's schools need to be open for in-person instruction. That was the number one message. We go now to the Secretary of Education. He was all over the place. He was really making the Sunday talks show circuit. Miguel Cardona, who joins us from Meriden, Connecticut. Good morning to you. We saw him on Face the Nation. Good morning, Margaret. Happy New Year to you as well. We saw him on Fox News Sunday. We've been very clear. Our expectation is for schools to be open full-time for students. And uh, he was also doing some other little cable hits here and there with different networks in, in the preceding days as well. Our students belong in the classroom, and we can do it safely. We have better tools than we had in the past. Uh, School closures on students. Some of the educators disagree with you. But, Mr. Secretary, how practical, in your estimation, is the testing-centered approach? I'm Annie Reese. This is Politico Dispatch. And today... I'm Juan Perez, and I'm an education reporter with Politico. Juan Perez on the tensions between the federal government, state governments, and school districts, and the emergencies that school districts face as they attempt to resume classes with the Omicron variant spreading. The message is the economy must be open for business, and therefore schools must be open for business. But this hopefully temporary surge in cases is really showcasing its ability to disrupt our plans and and delay our dreams of getting back to normal. I mean, let's be clear. Many schools are getting back to business after winter break. Most of them are, in fact. But there are major urban systems on the east side of the Mississippi River, at least, that are facing serious challenges. And what are a lot of those challenges? I think one of the big ones is access to virus testing. That's one problem that's starting to emerge here. But even in places where testing is available, we're seeing logistical problems and confronting a simple fact that a lot of people are sick or or reporting that they're sick and they're unable to safely report to work. So we told our newsletter readers this pretty clearly before Christmas. Strained supply lines, burned out or infected school workers and worried parents could prompt shutdowns anyway. And, And that's exactly what we're seeing. So despite the fact that the president is leaning on a school virus testing and and quarantine strategy that was recently backed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, it's clear that's not seeing fully widespread adoption across the country. And and, and there's just an open question as to whether there are enough tests out there to really help schools open and stay open on on a recurring basis. We don't have a federalized system of education in this country. Almost all of the authority, almost all of the decisions, and uh, a lot of the pressure is put on state and local governments. They are the ones responsible for carrying out this guidance. They are the ones responsible for spending the resources. They are the ones responsible for responding to conditions on the ground, concerns of parents, whether it's over opposition to mask mandates or support for remote learning or just a real desire to get back to normal. They're the ones who are really confronting this stuff head on. So yeah, the federal government is involved, of course, but real the real pressure, the real responsibility is on state and local. And that's just the way it works in this country. That's the way it's set up. And you have a story out that outlines a lot of the tensions between the federal government, state governments, and school districts across the country. 
And one of the biggest frustrations seems to be that we see states ending mitigation efforts like mask mandates in schools, even as the Omicron variant is spreading. We all know in-person learning is is preferred here, but that goal, like we said, is is facing some real practical impossibilities. It's it's just yeah. like the airline and healthcare sectors. You've got to deal with cases amongst the staff that you need to keep the classrooms open. You need to figure out how you're going to maintain student safety when classmates test positive in an environment where cases are really zooming up amongst kids. And uh, again, despite this availability of new tools that we have, vaccines for children, promises and plans to distribute hundreds of millions of additional virus tests to household beginning, beginning this month, it's just still clear that a lot of schools can't keep up with infections and scan their communities for the disease. So, you know, one of the top labor union leaders in the country, Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, told me that we have to acknowledge this challenge. And, and if there are logistical issues like an infection rate being too high or, or staff shortages just simply making it impossible to have a school open, well, then a school probably has to be on a temporary pause. But that's really running into the political message here because Elected leaders across the spectrum want schools open. They're pointing to the social and the academic damage that we've just talked about here. They're responding to parents who are exasperated. And there's a perception among some elected leaders, and this was really enforced, reinforced by the Virginia governor's race, that calls for closed schools are, are a losing political message. Um, yeah. But there's that perception, and then there's just the reality of the situation. Where are some of the places that we are seeing school closures? That's a good question. Again, it, it seems to be centered, at least right now, generally to the east of the Mississippi. Um, I'll, I'll give you some examples here. Atlanta and, and schools in the Atlanta area are, are one really prominent example that I think need to be getting some more attention here because that's a, that's a major population center and a, and a large number of kids who are getting affected by this. Mm-hmm. But we're also looking at uh, Milwaukee and Detroit, for example, Cleveland as well. And then there's some other, there's some other real political challenges uh, in Chicago, for example. Um, yeah. The teachers union there, as, as we speak now, is um, getting ready to undertake a, a, a potential move, a unilateral move to remote learning for up to two weeks. They've really been at odds with Mayor Lori Lightfoot and city school officials over safety plans there. And it's really coming to a head now to to a point where teachers could very well just elect to, again, on their own, move to remote learning. And and that's going to put the city in a position of deciding whether or not they're going to lock teachers out of virtual classrooms or or try to keep things going under those circumstances. That's going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah. So again, a lot of schools are back in business, but we can't forget that uh, there are major urban school systems that are really running into issues here. I was struck by what the Detroit school superintendent told families on New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. Record infection rates in Detroit, according to him, meant the system simply couldn't hold in-person or online classes at least through Wednesday because returning to classes would have led to extensive COVID spread. It would have put the school system's employees and students and families at risk. And there was another thing that just really brought home how far we still have to go when it comes to adjusting to the virus here in schools. He said Detroit simply couldn't go to online learning on Monday because their students, all their students, still don't have laptops. Think about that. The good news is that hopefully 
this is temporary and and that hopefully the disruptions we're encountering right now don't stretch out as long as they did over the course of the past nearly two years now but right now a lot of people are still getting sick a lot of people are still dying a lot of people are still in the hospital and and those trends aren't reversing yet and just out of curiosity for all of us following these issues is there like one school system one city or one governor that as an education reporter, you are most closely looking at as a bellwether? Because of the fact that schools are, are so decentralized and, and so um, kind of tied to the own circumstances of their individual communities, you can look just about anywhere and, and find any kind of storyline and, and any sort of issue out there. Mm. But I, I think it is important to take an eye, uh, to keep a close eye on what's happening, again, in some of the biggest urban school systems in the country right now. Um, New York City's Schools are back open for business. They're working really hard to try to get testing and things like that in, into um, into the buildings to, to keep things safe. But a lot of kids still didn't show up for classes on the first day out of break um, this week. And, you know, like something like on, on the level of one third of students didn't show up. At least those were some of the early estimates that I saw. That means two thirds of kids showed up, but still one third missing is a is a considerable issue. And then I'm also looking at Chicago um, just because of the sheer tenacity and ferocity of the political battle that's going on there between the teachers union and uh, city government. There's a lot of concerns about whether or not, um, you know, the, the city's infrastructure is able to just keep up with this thing and and deploy safety and, and mitigation measures at scale throughout schools, particularly in under-resourced schools and at-risk neighborhoods throughout the city. I think California is another interesting place to keep an eye on just because because of state law, remote learning is really off the table. Mm -hmm. So as schools there have to kind of confront these staffing problems and, and get creative, you know, they can't really go to remote learning. They got to stay in person. So it's kind of an added layer of challenge for them because if remote isn't an option, then you're forced to really do some things that, uh, you know, classroom management practices might not normally advise when it comes to where you put kids, how you supervise them, and, and how you keep them fed and safe. Juan Perez, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Also today, a record 4.5 million American workers quit their jobs in November, which is seen as a sign of confidence and more evidence that the job market is bouncing back from last year's recession spurred by the coronavirus. The Labor Department also reported on Tuesday that employers posted 10.6 million job openings in November, which is down from 11.1 million in October, but is still high by historical standards. And the U.S. government announced Tuesday that it had arrested one of the main suspects in the killing of Haitian President Jovenel Moise and charged him with conspiracy to commit murder or kidnapping outside of the United States. The suspect is Mario Antonio Palacios, a 43-year-old former Colombian soldier. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>